Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, I'm not sure if I can get through all of this today, but if not, we'll just pick it on up. This I'm finally going to get to preach this message on Mephibosheth. I've only been trying for close to a month. But um, Mephibosheth is, a, is an interesting character. And, and when I say that, you're probably, after a while, you're going to think, I thought he was teaching on Mephibosheth because it's going to take us a while to get to Mephibosheth. The entire scenario around the life of Mephibosheth and the life of David and Mephibosheth's father Jonathan and his father Saul all plays in to this. And, and it all comes down really to typology. And the, everything in the Old Testament can be looked at, or let's not say all things, but, but most things in the, in the Old Testament can be types or um, presages of New Testament truths. And, and that's what I want to look at. And, and, but keep in mind, and I mentioned that, because types and typology are generalizations. They, they represent aspects of a New Testament truth or a New Testament person. In fact, in this, um, this sermon, uh, David is going to play a big part of it, and David is a type of Christ. But there are aspects of David's life that are typically Christ-like, but he's not a perfect representation of Christ because David had sin. He had some very vile sins. So keep that in mind. If, If you take types and you push them too far, you're going to get into error. So there are generalizations that I'm going to make that are true, but don't try to take them any farther because it is a generalization. And, and I want us to open, first of all, to um, 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, but I want to cut, set the stage here. This is 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. This is where the Philistines were gathered to challenge the nation of Israel, and we're going to see um, Goliath, and we're going to see David kill Goliath in, in these passages. Goliath in this entire story is a type of Satan. He is big, he's mean, he's boastful, he's coming after you, he's going to cut your head off, he's going to kill you, he's going to destroy you. Um, The New Testament says that Satan goes about as a roaring lion. He is big. He is a, you know, he was one of the grandest angelic beings in heaven. But he has had his authority stripped, he's had his power stripped, and just like uh, Goliath, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. He's he's already been dealt with, but we're going to look at Goliath today as a a type of Satan. Saul, on the other hand, and he is going to play a part in all of this, is a type of Adam. He was born to be a king. He was born um, really um, physically... And, and in some ways, emotionally and, and culturally, he was the perfect king. Now keep in mind at the, this time period, because we're going back um, thousands of years from today, 
the average height, I would be a very tall guy if I lived back then, which would be kind of nice. You know, you're going to have to get to my son-in-law, Matt's 6'4". I always look up at Matt. Matt's pretty tall guy in today's world. He would have been a giant. He, he was probably, Saul, they estimate, was probably 6'2 to 6'4, somewhere in that range. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a handsome man. He had some social standing. He, when, when people looked at Saul, he was pegged, that's a natural leader. And unfortunately, Saul took that to heart. One of the rebukes that God gives him in all of these passages, Saul, when you were small in your own eyes, you did well, but you grew in your own eyes. To the point where when, when Samuel the prophet comes to him and rebukes him and tells him that the kingdom's been removed from him, one of the things that, that Samuel had done, and it's almost like a little footnote, is Samuel had erected a statue of himself to show everybody how impressive he was. We have that going on today. You go, you know, you'll find federal buildings named after people. You'll find wings of hospital named after people. Um, it, it is great for rich people to give money to causes. But when your name has to be attached to the money and to the cause so everybody knows that you donated this wing to this hospital, your, your motivation might be just a little bit suspect. I'd rather, I'd rather, in that case, I'll just give the money. Don't let anybody know where it's coming from. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, is a, a, a type of the sons of Adam or, or the descendants of Adam. He was born to inherit a kingdom. He was supposed to be the successor to his father. But his father, when, when he, he dies with his father... When Saul died, Jonathan died, same day. And for each of us, when Adam died, we died. That's, that's why we need a Redeemer. is because we inherited Adam's sin. I mean, if, if you look at, at, at pictures of my father at late 60s and look at pictures of me, it's scary how much we look alike. Why? Because I carry his genetics. Now, there are some traits in, in my facial features. If you look at my uncles on my mom's side, I've got the Lawson nose. I heard that all my life. It's there, you, you inherit physical traits, but we also, more importantly, we inherited spiritual traits. We, we all stand in this as a type of Jonathan, but even more appropriately, we are... Mephibosheth is a type of descendant of Adam. When, when um, the news came that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, everybody knew that David was going to take over the kingdom. The practice in that day, when a new king came in, he killed everybody in the family. He didn't want anybody coming back and saying, I have a lawful claim to that throne. Well, David... That wasn't David's attitude, but the people around Mephibosheth thought, this is what David's going to do. They find this kid, and he was a little boy. So his nurse picked him up, took off running, fell with him, broke his feet. His feet were never set correctly. He was a cripple the rest of his life. And not only was he a cripple the rest of the life, but the rest of his life he was told periodically, consistently, David will find you, he'll kill you. 
David's out to get you. You're, you're from a defeated family. You don't have any power. You're a hunted, hated person because of who your dad and your grandpa were. And he lived with that mindset. So do we. Whether anybody preaches, and, and we get accused a lot in the Christian church today of, of being haters, being, you know, the, the phobes. We have all kinds of phobias. These people are bad. Those people are bad. And to be honest with you, there are some Christians that that is a, a legitimate criticism of them. They, they, they can't look past the person's sin to see the sinner. That needs a redeemer. And realize that they were just, we are just as bad as they are. We needed Christ. I, let me just use me as an example. You cannot find a homosexual out there that was any more of a sinner than I am. You can't find a murderer out there that has more of a murderer's heart than I had. I don't, you name the sin, my sin was just as bad. It may have been different, but it was just as nasty, just as bad, and I needed the Savior just as much. And sometimes we get so disgusted with the sin and the attitude of, of sinners that we forget we were there with them. And we need to see past them. We need to see that there's a Goliath in their life. And we need to load our sling up with some stones and go after the Goliath in their life so they can be freed, so God can come in and deal with them because I guarantee you, nobody wants to listen to me. What do I have to say? I've said it before. I don't get worried about politicians anymore. I have been alive when, when, when I was born, um, Harry Truman was still president. Every president from Truman all the way through Mr. Trump today... Not one of them has ever sent me a letter, rang up my telephone, sent me a telegram, and said, what do you think about this situation? They don't care what I think. And to be honest with you, most of their situations that those guys deal with, they're way above my pay grade. I have an opinion, but as somebody once said, opinions are like noses. They're really good when you keep them out of my business. And if you look at them too close... They are all ugly. On that happy note, let's go to 1 Samuel 17. Now, let me put you in remembrance. 1 Samuel 16, Saul has, or not Saul, but Samuel has already gone to um, the camp of, or the, the home of Jesse and anointed David to be king. David already knows, and David's family already knows, this boy has been anointed. He's the next king. That's what God says. Saul may not know it, but David knows it. And then we come to, to chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sukkot. And don't pay attention to my pronunciations of these Hebrew names. I, I am the world's worst. If you gave me a month, I might get it right, but probably not. I, I pronounce them the same way I spell them. It's constantly changing. But they were gathered at, at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sukkot and Azka in Ephem's Damien. Now, I don't want to get real technical, but it, it, it's really interesting when you look at these words. 
the, 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 the word there, uh, Ephes Damien, is, would, would correspond kind of like to our counties here in Indiana, where Suco and Aska are cities. So what, what the writer here is saying is that the Philistines are gathered up, and remember, the Israeli army is right there with them. They're sitting on two hills with a big valley between them. And you got the Philistines on the top of one hill, the Israelites on the top of the other hill, and they're in the county of Ephes Damien, which means, it literally means the edge of blood. It represents a blood covenant. So these two armies are gathered in the midst of a blood covenant. And if you want to think about a blood covenant, think back even farther in, in, in history. Think of Abraham and God the Father. God came down and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of nations. You want to know how many kids you've got? Look at the sea or the sand on, in the seashore, the sand in the desert. You want to see how many descendants you're going to have? Look at the stars of the sky. Those are represent two different groups of people. The sand represents natural descendants, the Jews. The stars in the sky represent spiritual descendants, non-Jews who exercised faith just like the father of faith, Abraham, did, and became believers and, and, and partook of the same covenant. But when God cut that covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham, this is what I want you to do. And they gathered up, I don't know how many animals, but a bunch. And they sacrificed every one of them. And then they split them. Remember, these are four-legged animals for the most part. They started at their nose and split them right down the middle by their backbone all the way through and set out the halves of these animals. Now, this is a bloody mess. There's blood everywhere. There's meat everywhere. There's all kinds of stuff laying out. And Abraham has, has followed God's direction, and he's laid all this stuff out. And then this is a blood covenant. This is a covenant that says, if either of us break this covenant, this is what we're going to look like. We're going to die. We're going to die, and it's going to be a horrible mess. Death is the price for breaking this covenant. And God the Father sitting in heaven, and he's looking at Abraham, and he says, I want to make this covenant with Abraham. He's going to break it, and I'm going to have to kill him. I don't really want to do that. But I know he can't keep the covenant. So what's he do? He knocks Abraham out. Cold. And it, the, the Bible says this smoking lamp, which is a representation, it's a theophany. It was a, a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus. This smoking lamp came and passed through, and they, they literally passed through in a figure eight, which represents infinity. This is an infinitely enforced, an infinite in character, an infinite in, in uh, band covenant that God the Father is making with God the Son. Because Abraham and God the Son is making it in Abraham's behalf. That is what's going on here. They're gathered in this county of blood covenant. It's harking back to the covenant that the Father and the Son made together. And they're sitting between these two cities 
Sukkot literally means to entwine, to, to shut in, or to fence in. And, and the, the other city that they're between is Aska means tilled ground. It's ground that you farm, that you're going to get something out of. You work it, you plant it, you're going to get a return. It represents prosperity. And to me, what this, what this is showing, there's a, a covenant, both that God made with Abraham, but also that God made with Adam. I don't have time to go into it, but there are all kinds of references throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, to the idea that God made a covenant with Adam to have dominion of the earth for 6,000 years. That's part of the reason in, the, new, in the, the Gospels, every time you see Jesus come up against a demon, the demons always say the same thing. What do you, son of man, have to do with us before the time? Have you come to torment me before the time? They knew. We have, we have a, a, a lease. We have a, 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 an agreement that God made with, a, with Adam, and it goes to this point in time, and it's not to that point in time yet. So what are you doing here? You are God. You're a man, but you're also God. And you're, you're here a little early. My lease hasn't run out, so you can't evict me. Well, God's hearkening back to that also. I have this covenant with you, and in the midst of that, Goliath gets up every morning and he screams to the, the, the Israeli army, I'm going to tie you up. I'm going to bind you up. Not only me, but I represent the strength of my gods. And you're just a bunch of old squirts or young squirts. But you're squirts. You're, you're grasshoppers. It's exactly what the, the, the ten spies brought back the evil report later on in, in Israeli history. That's what Goliath is declaring to them now. You can't come up against me. I'm too big. I'm too strong. I'm too good. Why? Because my gods are great. And what do you got? One god? I got hundreds. You think you can win? And, and, and what, does, what does David do? Well, look down to uh, verse 16 in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And it says, And the Philistine drew near and presented himself Forty days, morning and evening. It's interesting here again, 40 in the, in the Bible represents a period of testing, a period of um, temptation sometimes, a period of punishment at other times. But this is a period of testing. For 40 days, Goliath came out every morning and every evening. He got up, he said, good morning, Israelis, you bunch of wimps, you're all going to die. And I'm going to be one of the guys that kills you. Because my gods are great and your God, your God is nothing. And then when they, at evening came, he got up, went up on the hill. He said, good evening, Israelis. Just want to let you know, my gods are still great. Your God is still a pune. And if you think you can, your God is so great, come and challenge me. And the Israeli army, all of them, the entire population just quaked in fear. And then this young boy showed up. Now remember, David is here is a, a, a type of Christ. He shows up in the middle of the battle. And 
Everybody is terrified. Everybody is, is just simply, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, excuse me, this the, part of the typology here, and you, if you've got your Bibles, you don't have to turn here, but in, in John chapter 5, verse 19, this is Jesus, because we have to keep in mind, Jesus was fully man. He was fully God. He's, when, when the Bible says that He is the only begotten Son, it doesn't mean that He is only in that there's only one. It means more of, of the sense that He's unique. There's never been one like Him, and there's never going to be another like Him. He stands alone. Now the great news is, after He finishes defeating the devil, He invites us to come and live in Him, and for Him to live in us. So in, in essence, He makes us like Him. We are not Him. Don't misunderstand ever. Being in Christ doesn't mean that I become God. But I have all the authority of God. Because He said, here I am, I've got all authority, go in my name. So we have His authority, but notice how He lived. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus has just healed on the Sabbath. The, the, the lawyers, the, 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 the nitpickers are just challenging Him left and right. You don't have the authority. This is the Sabbath. You can't come in here and heal people on, on the Sabbath. It's not allowed. It breaks our law. And Jesus answers them and he says, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, that, that literally means, listen guys, there's, there's no truer truth than I'm a, what I'm about to tell you. I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. Now that does not mean that Jesus didn't have the authority as the second person of the Godhead to do anything he would choose to do. What it does mean is that Jesus was the second person of the Godhead, but He took all of the rights and the privileges of being God and set them aside and said, I got the right. I'm not going to use it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk out in a sinful world what Adam should have done in a perfect world. And the only things you're ever going to hear me say or see me do, he finishes his statement. But what he sees, speaking of himself, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, referring to the Father, the Son also does in like manner. That's why earlier I said one of the prayers I pray the most is, is um, Colossians 1, 9 and 10. God, fill me with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that I might have a walk worthy of you. My walk is important, but my walk only, I can only walk out God's will as I know God's will is in... in excuse me, let me back up and try that in English. My walk can, I can only walk out His will to the extent, first of all, that I know His will... And secondly, to the extent that He empowers me to walk out that will. And if I don't know His will, I can't walk it out. But He says, I want you to know. I want you to know my will. I want you to be me in this world now. And what you see me do, 
Because remember, Jesus came, his function was to reveal the Father. As the church, our function is to reveal, reveal Jesus. And as we walk out his will, as we pray and submit to him and say, God, show me what you want in this situation. Then he empowers us to walk that out. But only when we do what he does in the same manner that he does it. That's how Jesus, he, he did everything he did as a man, sinless man, yes, but as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit following the will of God. None of it did he do as the second person of the Godhead. He, said, he, he was, and he had rights, he had privileges, but he set them all aside. And he lived that perfect life died the perfect death, and rose again and said, Now, here's everything I got. Go do something with it. Now, going back to 1 Samuel, this is, is David. David has presented himself. He's asked everybody, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? David, remember, they're in the county of blood covenant. David immediately, his thought goes, this guy's big, but he doesn't have a relationship with my God. He doesn't have a covenant with our God. Who does he think he is? And why are you guys quaking at this man? He's big, but he has no rights. He has nothing that God can, can lend him, no power that God can give him, because he doesn't have a covenant relationship with our God. Verse 40, this is speaking of David, it says, Then he took his, his um, well, excuse me, let me back up. Verse 38, he went and, and talked, David went and talked to Saul, and Saul said, Hey, I'm impressed by you, young man, and I think you can go out and meet Goliath. But here's what I want you to do. Remember, David's already been anointed to be king. Saul's already been told you've lost the kingdom. So Saul is now operating as a natural man, out of his sin nature. God is not anointing him to lead the nation anymore. He will anoint David to lead the nation now. But in verse 38 it says, So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. This quite literally is Saul saying, this is how you need to operate against Goliath. You need to go in your natural strength. You need to go with armor. You need to go with a sword. But it's all going to be you. You're going to have to fight him, sword to sword, armor to armor. It, it, in, in the typology, it's, it's Saul telling David, for us today, the, un, operating under the new covenant, it's like, you're going to have to, and I'll be honest with you, and this was my experience, and I'm not criticizing any church. This is, I don't know that this was so much how, what my church preached, but it's what I heard and how I interpreted it. And my interpretation was very wrong. But in the church that I was raised in, the message I always heard was, you, you need to be born again, but once you get born again, you're on your own, bud. Live life the best you can. And if you, if you have problems, you're not dedicated enough. 
But everything that you had to do, this was the message I got. Whether it was preached or not, it's what I got. Everything that I have to do, I have to do in my own strength. And I failed time after time after time after time after time to the, I got to the point at 17, I said, I'm done. I can't do it. Well, of course I couldn't do it. I didn't have the strength. I still don't have the strength. I had a pastor one time made the statement from a pulpit. He said, the, the, the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. Well, he hesitated a little longer, and, and this was a guest speaker, and um, it was a little embarrassing because he said, the Christian life is not hard, and he paused, and our pastor said, Amen! And then he said, No, it's impossible. And it is impossible. You can't do what God calls you to do. You cannot do it unless you submit to Him and let His grace reside on the inside of you and get full of His power and full of His grace and let Him help you to lead that out. Part of that is Colossians 1.9, figuring out what His will is and then praying and believing that he is, he is living on the inside of me, empowering me to do what He says I can do. And it's going to have to be by faith because when you look at it, let's put it this way. When God gives you a vision of what's to come, if it's God, you're going to, your knees are going to get a little weak. Your knees are going to tremble a little bit. You're going to think, I can't do that. And God said, well, you're starting out well. You figured that much out. Of course you can't do it. If you could do it, it'd be done by everybody. Like one guy said, you know, uh, I think it was Brother Hagen. lady came up and, and asked him a question. And he said, well... Will you do what I say? And she said, well, if it's not hard. That is our attitude a lot. It's like, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want as long as you don't want me to do anything hard. Because if it's hard, if it requires a sacrifice, if it requires me really to change, I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. Well, if you're honest before him and that is your attitude, he, he will help make that adjustment. But in the end, that is an adjustment we have to make of our will. And say, God, I, I, I am willing. It's what Jesus did. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed that last prayer, he said, God, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. But not my will, but your will. That was not, that was a prayer of consecration. It wasn't a prayer of faith. Jesus said, I don't want to go, I don't want to finish this job. But more than anything, I want to be pleasing to you. Because remember, he wasn't operating then as the second person of the Godhead. He was operating as the Son of Man, as a human. And he said, your will is paramount for my life. And I'm willing to do anything. Don't really, my flesh is recoiling at this. I don't, I've, I've seen, you couldn't live in that time span and not know what the Romans do to, to prisoners. And everybody had seen people crucified if you lived in, in, in Roman-occupied territory. If you had lived any time at all, you would have seen it. And he knew this is not going to be pleasant. This is going to be horrendous. And I, I recoil at that. But my, most, my, 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 my greatest ambition is to be pleasing to you and to do your will. And I know this is your will, so your will be done, not mine. And he submitted to it. That's what David's doing. Saul's encouraging him, here, operate out of your flesh. 
David was smart enough to realize, I'm just going to go out there and get beat to death if I go in this armor. So what does he do? Verse 40. We're in 1 Samuel 17, 40. So speaking of David, it says, Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the, to the Philistine. David took what he had, what God had already empowered him to use in the past, and that's what he went up against the Philistine with. From a natural standpoint, he's about to die. He's probably not half the height of, of, of Goliath. He's not half the strength of Goliath. Goliath has a, a, a spear that it takes two men to carry it out for him. He's got a sword that's huge. Everything about the man is huge. He's just one mean, mean person. And he's intimidating. And this little guy goes out there with a sling and a staff. Now a shepherd's staff, pretty stout piece of wood. But it doesn't go up against spears and swords. That's like the, the old saying, you know, you don't want to show up to a gunfight with a knife. You're probably going to lose. Well, David went into a gunfight with a knife. Well, actually, I would say probably more accurately, Goliath went into a gunfight with a knife. He had a mighty sword, but David had a weapon because it was God-empowered that could strike at a distance. Had they gotten into a tussle, David probably would have lost. But David followed God. Verse 41, So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. The man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. That literally means Goliath is trusting in his gods to kill David. Verse 44, And the Philistines said to David, Come to me that I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. David knew where his strength was. His strength was in the, the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And I don't believe at this point David was referring to the armies of Israel standing behind him. I think it was more of a reference to when, when um, Elijah was telling the secrets of, uh, I forget the opposing army now, the opposing country. But every time this guy went out to fight, this king went out to fight, people were ambushing him. And he started killing his leaders because he thought, i got a spy in my midst. They're telling everybody my maneuvers before I get out there and maneuver. And finally, one of his wise men came and said, King, you don't have a spy. What you've got is a prophet in Israel that's praying. And he's telling all of these guys what you're about to do. So the king got wise. Let's go kill the prophet. And the prophet's servant, Gehazi, came out and grabbed, you know, started quaking and started screaming and called for Elijah. And he said, Lord, look, we're surrounded by armies. 
And Elijah looked at him and, and just simply looked at Gehazi and he said, Lord, let him see everything. And suddenly Gehazi's eyes are open and he looked at the, out in, the, in that same area. Instead of just seeing the enemies, the men standing there with natural swords, he saw God's army. He saw chariots of fire and angels of fire standing there with swords drawn ready to take the bidding of Elijah's word. Remember, Elijah said, I spoke the word and it didn't rain here for seven years. I speak to the weather all the time. It usually ignores me. But when Elijah spoke, because he knew it was God's will, it obeyed. And all these angels are just waiting for Elijah's word. You want us to kill them? We'll kill them all. That's, I believe, when, when David says here, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. He's not just thinking of the natural armor. He's also thinking the angelic beings. I got a God who has warriors that you don't know of. Jesus even said it to, um, to Pilate. Pilate said, are you a king? He said, yes, I am, but not of this world. Because if I was, my servants would fight. And I could call right now. For thousands upon thousands upon thousands. In fact, the, un, the unspoken part of that was Jesus literally looked at him and said, I could wipe the face of this planet clean of every living being if I wanted to call on my servants. But that's not why I'm, what I'm here for. I didn't come to destroy man. I came to save him. Amen? And then notice the last part of, of verse 45. He said, You've come with, with these natural weapons. I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You're not fighting me. I'm just the little guy that you can see. You picked a fight with the God of Israel. And you should not have done that, big boy. That's the Roberts translation right there. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David wasn't out there to boast about his great deeds. He was going to take the rock and put it in the sling and he was going to sling the sling around and let it go and the rock was going to kill Goliath. But David knew, it's not me fighting this fight. And I'm not fighting this fight to get rid of you guys. I'm fighting this fight so that the entire world will know that there is a God in Israel and you best not come against Him. Because we are blessed because He has blessed us. And if you fight us, you fight Him, not just us. That needs to be our attitude. That's why we, in, in, in 1 John, Jesus or John said that as Christ is, so are we in this world. We are His representation. When someone comes against us, unless we're over in the flesh doing something that we shouldn't be doing, which they may need, they may be just coming against you. Because if God's will is here and I'm standing way over here in my own will and fighting in my own power, guess what? I get to fight this thing out by myself. I only get to fight in God's anointing and God's power when I get in the middle of God's will. That's why 1 John 1, 10, 9 and 10 is so important. I need to know where your will is for me, Lord. 
This is where my protection is. This is where your grace is. This is where your anointing is for me. And when I'm standing here, someone come against, comes against me, they're not coming against me, they're coming against you. And then when I go to load my sling, I've heard all kinds of stories that, you know, Goliath had four brothers. I've, I've heard everything. For me, the, the significance of the five stones is I got enough firepower to take care of you and anybody else that comes down the road. I'm not worried. I got big enough gun to take you out. But I'm doing it so people will know there's a God in Israel. And then verse 47, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Everything David has done up to this point, he's doing because he's anointed to be a king. Remember in the New Testament, as believers in Christ, we are kings and priests. We stand in His authority. We're not kings in and of our own right, but we are kings because we are, we are in relationship with the King of kings. And we are priests because when we come up against people, our job is not to condemn them. Our job is not to, to convince them that they are rotten, no good sinners going to hell. Our job is to present them with the truth that Jesus came, Jesus conquered all of the things that they're having to fight against that make them miserable, that make them sad, that make them think, why in God's name am I still here on the earth? I don't want to live to be a hundred. I hope I die tomorrow because I want the pain over with. That is exactly what most of the world thinks. They just want out from under the pain. They want out from under the load. I'm sick of life. It's what makes them, to be honest with you, it's what makes people mean. I, uh, Joyce Meyer said it years ago, and I've, I've, it's, it's so true, I can't, I've never forgotten it. Hurting people hurt. We have the answer for that hurt. But we have to come with weapons that are trained on the real enemy, the Goliath standing behind them, that's binding them up, keeping them from their prosperity. Amen? Now, amazingly, I, barely, I just got into the introduction. I know you're shocked. We are going to take up later 1 Samuel 18... There are three covenants that David and Jonathan... Because remember, this was just David's introduction to the household of Saul. It, it says that um, in... We can go there, 1 Samuel 18. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them. For Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Day, or Saul was so enamored with David, and it was a love-hate relationship on Saul's part. He loved David and what David represented, because David represented the anointing that Saul had once. But he also hated David because he knew David was being true to that anointing, and he spurned that anointing and walked out from under that anointing, and he was angry. So he went from, I love you, David, to I'm going to kill you, David, constantly. Saul was in and out, out and in, because he loved David and at the same time he hated him because he represented what Saul couldn't do. 
or Saul didn't do. Listen, I, I don't, that's not an accurate statement. Saul could have done what God called him to do. He had the capacity. Because it wasn't living a sinful life. Remember, David's going to murder a man. Because he had adult, he, he, and, and if you read between the lines, um, there's, there are some real indications that David forced Bathsheba into that relationship. For one thing, she was probably a teenage girl. And David was a middle-aged man who was the king. Don't know that she had a lot of choice. But then she gets pregnant and David says, well, I've got to take care of this, so I'll bring you know, her husband home and we'll just say the child's theirs. He was a man of honor. He wouldn't go into her. My men are in the field fighting. How, who am I to come home and have pleasure? No way. I'll sleep with the guards. And when that didn't work, David just said, okay, I'll kill you. I'll do it in a slippery way so nobody will really know it's me. And nobody did. Actually, the kingdom looked on him and thought, you know, look at David. Look at our magnanimous king. This guy got killed. He's taken his widow into his house and he's going to raise her and raise her child as theirs. Wow, he's just a great guy. Until the prophet got a hold of him and said, you're a dog, David. This man had one sheep. You've got thousands. And you killed him for that one sheep. It's horrible. And, but David ran to God. It's the old saying, when you sin, that's not the time to run away from God. That's the time to run to God. Our inclination is to run away, to hide. God, I'm just a worthless sinner. No, you're not. Who told you that? That's God's response when you go to Him and say, I'm a worthless sinner. He wants to know, who told you you're a worthless sinner? You're not a worthless sinner. You're my son. Did you sin? Yes. Did it defile you? Yes. Did it cost you some things? Yes. But get over here and let me clean you up. And then get back out there and get to work. But the devil's right there. Goliath's right there saying, Oh, I saw that sin. Let me tie you up. I'll bind you a little harder. You can't get into your prosperity. I don't care that we're in the land of the blood covenant. I don't care that the Bible says you are a child of God, that you're filled with the Spirit. You're a sinner. You're a no-good sinner. And God's sitting there saying, if you just run to me, I'll clean you up. Just let me know that you recognize that what you did was wrong. And I will cleanse you from all of that. And then you can come in and, and feast with me and be happy with me. We're going to look at all of that. The, the covenants that David and Jonathan made, and they, they made three of them all represent parts of the covenant that Jesus made with us. And he did it willingly. It wasn't that this was our idea. You know? It was his idea. He decided, I, 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 there's something. And to be honest with you, it's a good thing I'm not God, because I would have looked at mankind and thought, let's just start over. I can do away with this universe and start a new one. i got time. I'm eternal. And yet God said, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. I'm going to come in and redeem them. Adam messed everything up, but that's all right. I knew he would. I already have a plan. And I'm going to come in. It's going to cost my son everything. But we're going to get it done. 
And it was all because he saw something in us. He saw things, he sees things in me that I don't see. I would have given up on me a long time ago. I would have said, ain't no way. You've screwed up way too many times. Just give up. You know, be like um, Job's wife. Just curse God and die. Well, Jesus wouldn't let go. He said, no. I see things in you. You can still do great things. He says that to every one of us. It's the old saying, check your pulse. If your heart's still beating, you've still got time, and God's still got something for you to do. Amen? Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.